Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, Adam Roberts. My guest today is one of my favorite food people um, on Twitter and on the internet who I followed for years. We followed each other, but we've never talked to each other. Um, his name is Tucker Shaw. He's currently the editor of Cook's Country for America's Test Kitchen. He has also been the food critic for the Denver Post, and he's the author of the book, Everything That I Ate. And uh, we have a great conversation today. It was so nice to find meet Tucker. Um, but before I get to my interview with Tucker, uh, one of our past lunch therapy patients, Kyle Buchanan, who is a writer for the New York Times, um, the carpetbagger for the New York Times, uh, told me recently, because he lives near me, that he started cooking. And if you listen to his episode, you'll remember that he never cooks for himself. He eats food from a gas station. So I thought we would check in with him first before we get to Tucker and see how he's doing in this current crisis. All right. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? Uh, <laughs> as well as can be expected. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you on because... I, you know, you're our neighbor, as people may know, and you've told me recently that subsequent to our lunch therapy session, you've started cooking a lot lately. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's true of probably almost everybody. The, the difference being, if you've listened to the episode that I did, uh, I don't cook. Yeah. Um, I uh, consume like a raccoon might if given <laughs> pocket money. Uh, in the way that I buy true trash from the gas station or go out to eat or microwave. <laughs> and uh, so this has been, this quarantine journey has been kind of the opportunity to learn to cook that uh, I never took because, you know, we were saying before when we, when we did that podcast, I was just so overscheduled and it was hard for me to think, oh, I'm going to spend an hour making something mm -hmm. and then scarf it all down and then clean. I just thought to myself, that's time so much better spent doing other things. And now <laughs> that concept doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, I have nothing but time to spend on, let's say, cooking and animal crossing. <laughs> and that is what I've been doing. Well, it sounds like the universe has conspired. They probably, you know, somebody out there listened to your interview and then yeah. created this situation. Truly, truly the most meager silver lining to this uh, cataclysmic event. But, uh, but it's been an interesting thing. It has provided me a measure of zen. Mm -hmm. It has kept me from checking the headlines for an hour and a half, which is really welcome. Um, and it's helped demystify cooking and food for me in a lot of ways. Well, I'm curious, so just to rewind the tape a little bit, um, when your episode aired, which was, you know, for people who didn't listen to it, I mean, you talked a lot about eating snack foods during the day and Doritos and stuff. And I, I know this because you told me that your mother had listened to it. But for people who don't know, how did your family react or how did people in your life react when they heard your podcast? Oh, I mean, my family already knows that uh, I have atrocious eating habits. Um, people in my life have called or texted to check on me. <laughs> in fact, including through this pandemic, my friend Fielder uh, uh, DM'd me not long ago just to make sure that I was still eating right or eating wrong. You know, I think uh, he was curious. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been an interesting thing. I mean, I think right now... Um, you know, I'm sort of rationing everything I've got, as, as are probably a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, I don't thoughtlessly consume anymore. I, 
you know, I can't just be like, oh, it doesn't matter if I'm out of food, I'll just like, you know, order this, order that, go to that, go to this. Like, I think pretty thoroughly to myself, for breakfast, you'll eat that tomorrow, for lunch, you'll eat that, and for dinner, you'll make this. Um, And my usual method of just snacking through the day, uh, uh, which I did in lieu of three square meals, has kind of fallen by the wayside, because I don't want to run out of food. I think we all have to sort of think more thoughtfully about it so that we're... um, you know, we're able to sustain more time indoors and we're able to put less pressure on an incredibly overburdened system that's designed to get all of us quarantiners um, something to eat. Well, I'm curious. So that moment when we all started to realize that this was going to be going on for a while and you started to transition from snacking to cooking, what was the first thing that you made for yourself? Well, so I had... Basically, I guess even before, because I had I had come back at the very beginning of March, very impromptu from uh, a vacation in Paris, and I was supposed to be gone for two more weeks. Um, and the writing had started to be on the wall, so I skedaddled, came back, and before I'd even come back from Paris, I had signed up using. This is going to sound so spawn. Uh, I had signed up for one of the sort of. HelloFresh referral things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my boyfriend's friend had a HelloFresh code, so I put it in, fully intending to just get the free week and then cancel it, uh, which I did. Like, as soon as the uh, meals were on their way, I canceled it <laughs> on my credit card and just waited for, you know, one week of free food to arrive. Um, and then they got here, and I think the very first thing I made was uh, creamy Parmesan chicken spaghetti. Okay. Um, followed by figgy balsamic pork, pork with roasted green beans and potatoes. And then a griddled onion cheeseburger. Wow. Uh, so those are, wedges. those are kind of, you know, I would say like not total beginner dishes. I mean, those sound kind of complicated. Um, if you're starting from a total standstill, like I did for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, they, they spell it out pretty easily on the back where they've got the sort of step-by-steps. Um, definitely had to Google some terms uh, mm-hmm. that I was unfamiliar with. You could text me. Um, I'm just down the street. I know, but I want to impress you with the, the photo of the, of the result. Um, uh, and there's, yeah, it, it's a, so it's been an interesting process. It always takes longer than it says it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And it, Mostly turns out okay. I've had some snafus, but yeah, you know what I was saying before about demystifying it. This is like making and cooking things is like a magic spell Mm -hmm. to me uh, where like I watch you or or somebody else conjure something and it's almost like I don't want to know how it happened. (laughs) It kind of ruins the trick. Yeah. but now I'm learning about it. I'm learning a lot about it. And I think it's actually helpful. I think it will expand my palate to know these things now and uh, make me a little bit less trepidatious about eating outside my uh, usual guidelines, presuming that we ever get the chance to like leave our houses and eat it. Yeah, which might not be anytime soon. Um, yeah, who knows? I'm curious, how did it taste, though, when you first tasted a dish that you made from scratch? Did it taste amazing to you, or were you, were you happy with your own work? I was happy with it, yeah. I think I'm grading myself on a curve. 
Um, some dishes have tasted better than others because I'm still trying to get the hang of having multiple things going on at once. Sometimes you read the recipe and it says, while you're doing this, also do that. Or while that's in the oven, then start sauteing this. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> that's interesting. I know that these things are not going to time out to all be done at the same time. Are you good at multitasking? Can you multitask in other areas of your life? Well, yeah, very much so. I love having different projects going on at once. But I think also because I'm getting used to cooking and I'm getting used to my kitchen, like my oven is not going to, you know, uh, uh, bake things as fast as they think it's going to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I saute on medium high, it uh, cooks much faster than <laughs> they're telling me to. Yeah. So there's a little bit of like knowing the territory well enough to... Um, to know when, despite what it says, uh, it's ready mm-hmm. and I'm not quite there yet. So I'm still, I'm still naive and trusting and <laughs> still getting the hang of it. Well, it is like riding a bike or playing an instrument that truly is the kind of thing that the more that you do it, the better you'll get at it. So, yeah. But do I feel like an extra level of satisfaction that I can like taste in the meal? I don't know that I do, but I don't know that I'm doing it for that. I don't know that I'm doing it to make something tasty. I'm doing it to do something at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's always been one of those things that, you know, I thought if I had the time, I would maybe learn it. And I sure have the time now. I think, you know, we've talked to friends who are learning a language or doing X, Y, or Z. And, you know, we're also coming from the perspective of, like, childless gay men. <laughs> I know it's very different for, uh, for people who are not in that situation but each situation comes with its own difficulties and when you are as i am just trapped in a house all day uh with no one but my dog you look for ways to occupy your time and you look for activities that can restore i don't know some sort of sense of calm or normalcy or pleasure Mm -hmm. uh because there sure will be enough other things that happen that day to try to like you know to take some of that from you. So you have to find it when you can and store it up when you can. And I'm finding the act of cooking. It sounds, it sounds like an alien has possessed my body, but somewhat pleasurable. Oh, wow. See, <laughs> my gosh. See, this podcast really works, I guess. This in yeah, well, with the coronavirus. Yes, this, yeah. this, this slash the end of the world right. has really helped. That does uh, help. Well, Kyle, Thank you so much for updating us on your food journey. Well, I'm curious about you too, Adam. Have you detected some sort of change in how you cook, why you cook, or how it feels to cook during this? Well, it's funny, this uh, food writer that uh, I have followed for a long time, Amanda Hester, just wrote a whole essay about feeling... She wrote for the New York Times for a while, and she wrote for the food section, and she always felt like the food section was looked down upon as not as serious as the other sections. And now in this new thing that we're going through she feels like food has never been more important and she's feeling like what she does is actually quite serious and quite important and that that this situation has kind of highlighted like how you know what it means to be able to make a home and cook meals and stuff so for me I feel very validated and I feel honestly like I feel like the things that I did anyway now suddenly have taken on a greater importance and feel like they're hopefully inspiring people to follow suit. So I'm feeling. Yeah. (laughs) I've noticed that in the people I follow who know what they're doing, there is almost kind of like a redoubling of intent Mm -hmm. with cooking. Yeah. You know, suddenly everybody has their, what is the the thing? The starter dough? Sourdough. 
I'm going to bring you some. Yeah. Everybody's making it. Yeah. Everybody's obsessed with it. Everybody's on the same page as this, as each other. Everybody's just looking for things that they can put themselves into that are, that take themselves out of sort of the dire world that, you know, you have to then engage with at all other times. Totally. It's a little dose of pleasure in an otherwise, you know, <laughs> unpleasant day. Uh, well, yeah. speaking of sourdough, I'm going to go eat some of mine for lunch. Uh, okay. Enjoy. Yeah. Thanks for uh, talking and good luck with your cooking today. Yeah. We'll see when I cross the Rubicon of actually wanting to wash dishes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the hard part. All right, Kyle. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. All right, Kyle. Thanks for letting us check in with you. And now without further ado, here is my interview with Tucker Shaw. Hey, Tucker. Hey. All right. It's all working great. It's good? Yeah. I might awesome. have to like lean very close to the camera to make sure my microphone picks up my audio, but, um, Okay. Otherwise, it'll be fine. So if you see like up my nose or something, <laughs> don't freak out. Listen, these are times when things are forgiven. Okay, like good. Well, grooming is a whole new <laughs> experience now. Right? Yeah, I haven't showered for weeks. So, <laughs> so Tucker, well, actually, it's a good good way to start. How are you holding up in this pandemic right now? I mean, are you doing okay? I'm doing okay. Yeah, I um, I I feel lucky because I have a little apartment to myself and a place to hunker down. And, uh, I, I, uh, you know, the grocery stores are a little weird and a little spare, but I live right upstairs from this. Um, it's like a Russian grocer okay. downstairs, which, uh, is full of like, you know, really good basic stuff like eggs and milk. And they have all that kind of stuff too. Plus like really great cheeses and like very sort of, um, new to me, like, cured meats and smoked fish and like things that I'd never seen before. So, um, I've been patronizing them for a while, but especially during this period, it's right downstairs. Also next door to a wine shop. Very, very wow. You you chose your, your dwelling very well for this kind of situation. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I, I just read Amanda Hester wrote an essay on food 52 about how she feels like this pandemic has suddenly made her life and her work like feel incredibly vital and important. And I'm sure you must feel the same way about what you do with your job. I mean, you know, folk working in food and working on, you know, all the things you do, it's like now suddenly these superpowers are important and, and useful. Right. It's really interesting because, you know, I think, and I think this is probably true for a lot of food media. You're mostly talking to people who are, they're already interested in cooking, mm-hmm. like already into it. Suddenly I find myself talking to people or interacting with people who don't really don't have like a sort of innate interest in cooking. Right. But now like, sorry, like, <laughs> you can eat. and if you want to eat, um, you know, lean cuisine can get you so far. Right. But then like at some point you probably want to pick up a knife. So you know, there's there's no real silver lining to that, but, but we are, I feel, um, kind of, I don't know, I feel like there's an adjustment to the way that we are sort of thinking about who who is interested in, in what we're putting out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, well, I mean, you've been doing a really helpful thing on Twitter because you've been just kind of posting some basic techniques and recipes. And I, I followed one of yours for... Um, 
sandwich bread, which got me oh, on yeah. this whole bread journey. Now I'm making sourdough. So you, you yeah. kind of kicked this off, but I'm sure people are really appreciating what you're, what you're offering. You know, you're, you're sort of just like holding people's hands a little bit and helping them. Have you gotten a lot of good feedback from it? I've gotten some fairly good feedback. I've gotten some snark, of course. But, really? Um, you got snark? Of course. But, you know, that's that's the world. Um, it doesn't bother me. That's um, Twitter. I don't know if that's the world, but it's definitely Twitter. True. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Very good point. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, um, uh, there's a lot of knowledge that I think, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about my, this sounds kind of gooey, but my grandparents, because they grew up in... Um, you know, in Maine and New Hampshire as farmers, like subsistence farmers uh, in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, so for them, the idea of how to preserve foods or how to make, you know, the the tomatoes that you get once a year, if you're lucky, um, last, all that kind of stuff was just sort of shared knowledge. And everybody's kind of um, knew a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, I think... A lot of people, not everybody, but but a fair number of people in the world don't have to worry about that because there are other ways to feed yourself. Right. Um, so if you if you don't know how exactly to keep your cheese fresh forever, uh-huh. um, that's okay because you're probably only buying as much as you need for a certain amount of time. Anyway. Well, it also makes me think a little bit about like cooking for survival versus cooking for pleasure. Because I think, oh, right. I think what's so helpful, at least for me, is that the kitchen for me right now in this crazy time we're living in is such a solace and it's such a, it's such a source of comfort. And like to make delicious food right now feels like a way of like soothing the soul a little bit. Whereas yeah. I think people who are just sort of like figuring out like, how do I even just like feed myself? It's almost the opposite where it's, it's a source of stress and a source of, you know, angst. So I almost feel like people like us can hopefully like show people that there's some pleasure to be had and this can be a a way to enjoy yourself a little bit. And even if it's never pleasurable for everybody, there's a way I think that you can make the chore of it feel attainable Mm -hmm. and feel achievable and um, feel like, you know, because it can be overwhelming if you really don't understand kind of how to move around in your kitchen it can be, it almost seems like magic when you watch somebody do it really comfortably and really uh, sort of naturally. Right. Um, but really just experience, I think, right? I mean, once you start, once you pick up some tools and start futzing around, um, and maybe with a little bit of an assist from books or, or people like you or whoever, um, you, you kind of get some knowledge and some muscle memory. And so it feels a little bit less sort of bizarre and a little bit more... I don't know, kind of part of life. And it, one thing that's re- I really noticed is that having to cook and eat three meals a day, I think for a lot of people, suddenly they realize like, oh, now I understand why a hundred years ago, this was something that this is all you did. Mm-hmm. There's somebody in the family who basically, usually the mother, that's all they did. Mm-hmm. Just like, that you start breakfast and then everybody gets up and you eat breakfast and then you start lunch because right. like coming up, you know? Yeah. That's how I feel right now. I feel like it's hard to concentrate on any other work. Cause it's like, Ooh, I, I have to make three meals a day and I've got to yeah. feed the sourdough, which, you know, it's its own thing. Um, well, you have 150 pounds of flour. <laughs> <rest>. <laughs> 
I know I'm getting a lot of a lot of uh, flack from my husband. I, I did. Or if people are listening to this and don't follow me on social media. I ordered 150 pounds of flour. Now I feel horrible having done this too because I know that there's a run on flour. So my plan now is to give a lot of it away and to bake bread for people and give that away. So I'm not a horrible person, but so. I, I do have a lot of flour. <laughs> well, T- Tucker, I mean, we're about to get into your lunch therapy. I was Googling your name. I know, there's certain things I know about you. And there are yeah. certain things I don't know about you. I mean, I Googled Tucker Shaw, and I knew that you were the restaurant critic for the, was it the Denver Post? That's right, yep. And I know that you're the ed- an editor. The editor? Are you, what, what is your title? You're at America's Test Kitchen. Yeah, so I'm um, um, the editor of Cook's Country, which is okay. one of the magazines and TV shows and, you know, media properties, I guess, but- uh, at Kitchen. So there are two or three of me at America's Test Kitchen that oversee different brands. I see. So um, you, you oversee the, Cook's Country. All mixed up and, you know, we, we all kind of do everything. But but the part that surprised me was that you're also a novelist, a young adult novelist. I have done a, a bit of that. Yes, I have. Yes. Because <laughs> there was a book, something about confessions of a backup dancer. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Um, I wrote that book. Okay, so that was like at the end of the 90s, probably 1999. And I was working for a company that did book packaging. Okay. Which, uh, is sort of like a uh, middleman between an author, agent, uh, and a publisher. So whereas in a normal scenario, an author or uh, would work with a publisher and an editor to put together a book, a book packager kind of does that editorial work and delivers the the product completely to the publisher. Okay. So I'm working on other people's books. And then at one point I was like, can I just do one of my own? And, uh, and sure. I mean, like, why not? <laughs> well, the so reason I, I bring it up though, is like, I was wondering, were you ever a backup dancer? No, I wasn't. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I wasn't. But I, I, uh, that was a period of time when I was particularly, I think kind of pop culture obsessed and, uh, that book is sort of, um, it's like a fake romantic play about yeah. uh, a singer called Darcy Barnes, who is basically and another, her rival singer called Pashmina. Oh, okay. <laughs> who is uh, Christina Aguilera. And so it was really invented, but the whole idea was this kind of late 90s pop, pop music. I'm carrying you with me into the um, into my living room because I think okay. we might be having a bad connection. Uh, oh, okay. So I think it will get me closer to the, the Wi-Fi signal. There was a brief technical problem here, but then we came back. Hey, sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Is that better? Yeah, that's a lot better. Yeah. So I don't know if it's my end or your end, but um, anyway. Okay. So, Tucker, that was actually a good moment, though, to like have a little technical glitch because we are now ready... <laughs> to get into your lunch therapy. So what did you have for lunch today, Tucker? So today I had a tin of sardines uh-huh. and a piece of bread with tons of butter on it. Okay. Uh, as Clarissa or Jennifer may have said, lavishly spread with butter. Uh-huh. The two fat ladies reference. You're trying to butter up your lunch therapist because you know that's my favorite <laughs> cooking show of all time. Uh-huh. It's the best ever. Yeah. And I'm an orange for health. I feel like there's something about being in isolation that makes me feel like I'm on a ship. Yeah. Like I feel sort of out at sea with not a lot of access, so I'm trying not to get scurvy. 
That's great. Well, you said for health, but I thought sardines were very healthy. Like, I think that I guess they are. Sure, yeah. I think Alton Brown went on a diet where he like lost an insane amount of weight, and his strategy was to eat sardines every day for lunch. Wow, and it worked. I think so. Yeah, he lost a lot of weight. Great. So um, my question, my starting point for you is you wrote me an email with a picture of it and you said, um, and I hope I'm not violating your trust here, but this is a therapy session after all. You said you're going to roast me for this. And I'm curious, like, why did you think I was going to roast you for eating sardines and bread and butter? I mean, it looked delicious. It was great. I don't know. It's just sort of like a... It's, I, I don't know, maybe just because it's so simple or it didn't really take a lot of cooking. <laughs> oh, I, I see. So you saw this as an opportunity to show off your skills as a food person. And instead of doing like a lavish spread or like making something from scratch, you opened a can of sardines and you buttered some bread. It's just my favorite thing. Yeah. I love, love a tin of sardines. I, I think that there's something, I don't know, maybe I'm a cat. I don't know. <laughs> I analyze myself, but yeah, uh, you're a cat. Um, well, well, so do you? Do you have a lot of um, like what's the word? Like particularity about the kind of sardines that you use, or do you have a favorite kind, or could it be any kind? No, I have this. Uh, there's this mail order place called Portugalia, okay, which is in Portuguese cuisine or, or products. I should say it's kind of like La Tienda, you know, La Tienda, which yeah. does products it's portuguese okay and so i ordered a bunch of stuff from them a a few weeks ago and a whole wide range of sardines so i've been trying them out that's great well i mean i love sardines i think that i think food people tend to be more open to them sorry i'm walking around with you again but i'm just moving to a table i hope you're not thrown off by the visual elements of this um here this is a good spot uh, well, okay, so I think a good way to start this, though, is to, like, roll the camera back a little bit and um, talk about where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Boston? No, I was born up in Maine, mm-hmm. but we moved out to Denver, Colorado when I was in grade school. Okay. So most of the kind of marquee moments of my youth, <laughs> good and bad, uh, happened in Denver. Okay. Um, what, what, what was the reason that your family moved to, to Denver? I don't know. I mean, this was the 70s, and uh, my, they, my parents were both very, very young. Uh, you know, I was the second child, and I think they were, I don't know, 20 and 21 when I was born, or 22, maybe. Okay. Um, and so my father had gotten a job, and it was the 70s, and they were kind of hippie-ish, and Colorado seemed like something they were into. Um, Anyway, it was a nice place to grow up. I mean, it's really beautiful there. So, Where in Maine did you grow, were you born? I was born in Waterville, which is in the middle of the state. So it's not on the ocean. It's kind of in the lakes, lakes and mountains area. And you, were, um, you mentioned your grandparents were subsistence farmers. So did you, yeah. how old were you when you moved to Denver? I, I, gosh, I'm not sure. It was early in grade school, so oh. seven like that. So did you grow up like knowing your grandparents and going Very to the farm? Much. Yeah, mm. yeah. I spent um, most of most of most summers in New Hampshire with my grandparents. Um, they lived in this tiny little town in the middle of the state. Um, my grandfather was a cook at a school. Okay. Uh, and my grandmother was the town librarian. Wow. 
And so, um, and you know, I, I guess maybe it was a good thing for my parents to do with us. <laughs> right. Summer, so we spent a lot of time out there and, and I was very, very close. And my grandmother just died about three years ago, maybe four years ago. Okay. Um, and I, you know, was as close to her as anybody else in my life for her whole life. Um, she was 98, I think. Wow. When, That's a good long life. Yeah. Yeah. I was really hoping that she was going to hang on to, uh, one more birthday because that would have taken her through the 2016 election. Uh, yeah. You know, there was, there was a nice, um, bookend to her life because she was born before women could vote. Wow. For her to have the opportunity to vote for a woman candidate for president would have been pretty remarkable. But Anyway, we all know how that turned out anyway. So. Yeah, she, maybe she avoided the disappointment of, of that. Yeah. So what kind of stuff did your grandparents grow on their farm? I mean, was it mostly vegetables? Was it fruit? Well, by the, by the time I knew them, they weren't farming as their kind of occupation. So, um, you know, growing up, they just, they just farmed whatever they needed. Uh, you know, like one neighbor would have a cow, another neighbor would have chickens. And so you'd trade milk for eggs or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in New England, the growing season is short. So it's a lot, a lot of things like potatoes, uh, you know, apples, obviously. And in the summer, things like beans or tomatoes or things that you could put up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was never really like a big agricultural enterprise. It was more just growing to, to eat. It's funny that, I mean, it's your job, when I think of your job as like the editor of Cook's Country, and then I think of that TV show with like the White House with like the porch. I mean, it it all feels very like Norman Rockwell, very like all American, you know, even the story of your grandparents. I feel like you sort of have inhabited that world for a long time. I mean, you're very comfortable in that world of sort of putting things up and growing your own beans. You know, it feels like you're doing the right job for yourself. Yeah, I I think it's really. You know, it, it, in my in my real life, growing up with my my mother, um, I don't know. Maybe we. Sh- I think we share this in common. Like she didn't cook at all. Right. Like she had no interest, like in cooking, like at all. Which is common, I think, for a lot of food people, because it's like you, you. If you grow up with a mother who doesn't cook or a father who doesn't cook, it kind of leads you to be more curious. I think about the kitchen, probably. Totally. There's there was I, there's a point where I was like ten or eleven years old, and I was looking around, and I was like we can do better than this. Like, like send me to the grocery store with 20 bucks and like, let's, you know, we have a copy of joy of cooking in here. I, yeah. I'm sure. So did you start cooking at 10 or 11 years old? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I wasn't really any good at it, obviously. And I was mostly cooking things like, you know, brownies and cake and stuff that right. I wanted to eat. Um, but yeah, I mean, all through that period, through junior high and high school, I really kind of got into it. And um, there wasn't a lot in terms of food TV mm-hmm. to, to be useful in a teachy kind of way. So it was mostly from books and also learning from my grandparents in the summertime. And they, you know, not fancy. You know, the the recipe for a roasted chicken is you put the chicken in the oven and then later you take it out. Mm-hmm. No salt and pepper? That's it. Yeah, I mean, you know, stuff like that. But, it, like, nothing was complicated. Nothing right. was overcomplicated. Um, and nothing was sort of meant to be, except on holidays or something, nothing was meant to be sort of showy at all. And it's, it's so interesting because it's like, 
I've been reading that Bill Buford article in the New New Yorker about the baker in Lyon, which is, a, I don't know if you've read it yet, but it's, it's, uh, it's great. And this baker is like supposed to be one of the best bread bakers in France. And, um, and Bill Buford asks him like, what makes your bread so good? Is it the, the rusting? Is it the, the proofing? Is it the kneading? And he says, no, it's the flour from the farm that like I get the best flour. And then basically it becomes about where that part of the story becomes about the importance of the connection between a farm and and a cook like that. That's where it all starts is where, you know, where the food comes from. So for you to grow up in this environment yeah. is probably really is probably speaks to your your connection to food in general. It's so true. I mean, I um I think that like there, there's a tendency and certainly I lived this way for a lot of my life too, where food was kind of sequestered into a, a little part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but really when you start to, I don't know, for me anyway, when you start to really think about, um, like you say, where it comes from, um, who's touched it along the way and how it just kind of permeates everything in our world. Mm-hmm you start to breathe the idea of food and it really becomes, um, I don't know, just, just something that is as essential as, you know, obviously it's physically essential, but something that's kind of emotionally and, and spiritually and just sort of in a grounding way, very essential too, to just sort of believe that, you know, the earth with a little tending provides. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's way Pollyanna ish about like, the whole systems that we have and everything else. I mean, it's just rife with problems. Well, that's how I feel about making the sourdough. Cause I mean, people are critical of people who are making sourdough right now because it's a waste of flour, but, but, but because I have this flour now, it's like, wow, with just water, flour and salt and this like wild yeast, like I'm, we're feeding ourselves. Like we're going to have sourdough for lunch today. You know, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm curious. So, I mean, we're going to get into your whole story and, I, and you know, I want to make sure we don't dwell too much on just one part of it. But yeah. so if your mother didn't cook or your parents didn't cook, but your grandparents were these farmers who cooked all this food. So were your parents and you, and you described your parents as kind of hippies and moving to Colorado. So was part of your mother's rebellion to like turn her back on all that? Like, was she was that something that she was actively not interested in or was that just coincidental? Uh, you know, those, those are actually my father's parents. Oh, so sorry. It, father's parents. Yeah. Still, I mean, it did, it did probably represent some rebellion for my mother because, you know, she moved away from her family too. Um, I don't know if there was like a conscious, I have no idea. Yeah. I really don't. I think it was probably something that maybe just in her DNA was not something that she was terribly interested in, but also, you know, she grew up in the fifties and and 60s when I don't know I wasn't there but it seems to me like there was a lot of talk about how cooking is drudgery like it's not something that you want to spend your time on and it indicates kind of a lack of ambition or a lack of desire to achieve something grander Mm -hmm. and so also like the feminist movement like happening around that time too sort of to get women out of the kitchen. So it's like, I think of my own mother too, is sort of as much as she's not a feminist in a lot of ways, I think her, her desire to never cook a meal and to only go to restaurants is, does feel sort of like a feminist move to be like, I'm not going to spend my time in the kitchen. So I kind of see that. Um, yeah. 
Well, all right. So let's get to Colorado. So you were a kid in Colorado. You were cooking um, meals at 10, 11 years old. You started making brownies and stuff. And what kind yeah, just of- around, you yeah. know. So what kind of kid were you? Were you were you a quiet kid? Were you outgoing? Were you class president? <laughs> uh, I was I was a pretty okay student. I um I don't know if I was like wildly popular uh at any time. I had friends. We moved around a lot. Um my parents split up when I was pretty young, so I was kind of back and forth between their homes. Um we also had no money. Like truly no money. Um and so there was a big emphasis on, um, you know, I didn't do a lot of act- after school activities or things like that. There was some of that in my life. And, but mostly, you know, I was a latchkey kid and I had to figure out what to do. So a lot of that cooking time, especially in junior high and early in high school, was while I was watching Days of Our Lives, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? School or General Hospital was, was my favorite. Um, <laughs> So it was really, I think I was maybe, uh, I just had a a way, I had to entertain myself. And so that was my primary goal was to figure out how to keep myself occupied and keep myself busy. I got into a little trouble here or there, but like not in a huge way. And um, I had some close friends, but not a lot. Were you, um, did you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older brother who's two years older than I am. Okay. Um, And, uh, you know, we've come to sort of like um, recognize that we share a certain experience and a certain language with each other. I think at that time it was maybe a little bit complicated, but that's, that's normal in all families probably. Sure. But I'm, yeah. curi- I'm curious. I mean, this ki- it kind of begs the question with like the watching of soap operas and the cooking, like did anyone figure out, like, did you know that you were gay at a young age or did it take a while for you to figure that out? No, I for sure knew. I mean, and I knew in a way that uh, did not feel optimistic. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, that's when we first, you first started seeing in the newspaper this thing called GRID and then eventually called AIDS. And so, you know, when I entered, I entered high school in 1983, I guess, um, is that right? Yeah. I graduated in 87. So while I was a teenager, I was certainly clear that I was gay mm-hmm. or maybe homosexual, I guess <laughs> <laughs> what we called it. Um, I didn't ever talk to anybody about it. Certainly not in my family, uh, or to really any of my friends at school. Um, but that's partly because, you know, it did, there didn't seem to be a path to having a happy life right. in that sort of scenario. And so, yeah, I guess I just chewed on it mostly. And, um, yeah. But we're, we're different, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, but it's interesting how, like, these different generations of gay people now it just feels like it's starting to get better, a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And now, you know, when I, when I think about what it, what it would be like to be 20 years old now and be gay, I feel so different than from when I was 20 and I'm sure when you were 22. Yeah. So different and, um, you know, good and bad, but like mostly good, I think. I think so. I, honestly, I still sometimes I look around and I think, oh my God, like gay people can get married. Right. Like I 
still can't actually wrap my head around that because conceptually it was it was almost like something that you wouldn't even it just like that was like not even a topic to discuss like it was just sort of like of course not like that's crazy what are you talking about and it's also it it, it feels like it kind of just happened so quickly and then now with all the horrible things that are happening in the world it's almost easy to forget what that felt like to have this wonderful moment you know in history happen while we were alive um well i want to get to so so this is like you in Colorado, and I know ultimately or eventually you became the food critic for the Denver Post, but what what were the in-between moments, like between growing up in Denver and then becoming the food critic? Like, where were you? What did you do? Where did you go to so, college? Uh, yeah, after college, I moved to New York. I moved to New York in 1991. Okay. And there for 15 years. Wow. Okay. So, um, I actually saw you once. What? I don't know if I- to this story. I think it was maybe right around, I think it was before your first book came out. Okay. We were blogging and I was, I think it was right before I left New York or maybe I was just back on a visit to New York and I was out at um, a little bar called Marie's Crisis. <laughs> I mean, the greatest place in the entire <laughs> world where I would happily like live for the rest of my life. Yes. And it was jammed, and which Marie's Crisis wasn't always jammed, right. you know? It started to get really, really packed there for a while in the mid-zeros. And I, I just saw, I remember seeing this face across the room and like, gosh, that's such a familiar face. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> but I don't, I know I don't know that person, but, um, but then I put it together like after the fact. And, oh my gosh, Tucker, if you would have said hello, I could be like living there with you right now and we could be cooking together. This could have been a whole different story. Uh, wait, so you, so you lived in New York and so this, is this when you worked in the publishing industry? Yeah, I, uh, I moved to New York in 91. I, I went to work right away for, uh, Esquire magazine and, um, just as like basically getting coffee for people. And, uh, shortly thereafter went to work for out magazine, which hadn't had its first issue yet. Wow. So they were just kind of getting it going. I actually left there right as the first issue was being published or just before, so I wasn't there during kind of the glory days of that. Um, and then I bounced around in different publishing jobs and advertising jobs and uh, media jobs and stuff like that for the next 15 years. And was food always part of your life during all this? I mean, were you interested? No. no? I was always into it. Yeah, for sure. But uh, in terms, I, I never worked at a food magazine. I mean, I'd written for some little pieces for gourmet and stuff like that. Um, but professionally, no. So how did you become a food critic for the Denver Post? What what what, what led to that? I think that the, the turning point for me was uh, in 2004, I did this, I started doing this little project for myself where I took a photograph of everything that I ate for a year. I remember that. I remember when you did that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on my little Canon sure shot, because, you know, there was no camera on the phone or anything like that so i had to like schlep around new york with like this camera and sometimes i would forget it and have to go like across the street to the bodega to buy a disposable camera remember those yeah yeah sure um and so also at that point i guess i had written a ya novel about food that was based in cooking um what was that one called it was called flavor of the week okay i think i saw that Okay, got it. So you wrote a YA book about cooking. When you wrote that, 
did you feel something sparking you? Were you like, oh, I like I, this is a subject that yeah. I'm more interested in than other stuff? Or it suddenly became sort of recognizable to me that I could actually maybe pursue a career that involved food. You know, I used to listen to Ruth Reichel on the radio every week and, you know, I would save up to go out for dinner and stuff like that um, in New York, which, you know, even then was expensive. Um, But I was always a little bit obsessed with the food in the city, Um, but it never really came together for me that I could actually wrap that into my career because I thought, oh, maybe I'm starting too late or... Uh, maybe there's only so many spots in that world and you can't get one. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when I, after I finished that project of photographing all my food, they decided to publish it in a book in Chronic, at Chronicle Books. And um, I had a review from that from the Denver Post. And while I was on the phone with the woman who was interviewing me for the book, she mentioned, oh, hey, we're looking for a dining critic. Amazing. And I was like, kind of at that moment, I don't know if you remember this about New York, like it's kind of a relationship with New York to live in New York. Yeah. And I was like on a down moment with New York. I was kind of the city. So uh, I said, well, heck, why don't I come out and like interview for the job and just see what happens, not expecting anything to happen. And they auditioned me and they put me through some paces and eventually I got the job. Was there any, was it just a coincidence that you grew up in Denver and that this job totally. opened up? So what, what did it feel like to go back to Denver from New York? Was it strange to go back? Yeah, it was really strange because, you know, uh, it was a very different town from when I had left it 20 years before that, or almost 20 years before that. And I was a very different person. So it was, some parts of it were recognizable to me, but they didn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, you know, I lived in a different part of the city than I had grown up in and so forth. But every now and then I'd be driving around and I would come upon a corner and think, something happened here. I can't quite remember what it was. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) But I feel like I've been here before and maybe there are ghosts in this little, like, town, you know? Right. But at that time, I mean, this was 2005, 2006. And uh, Denver was really kind of booming mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of food happening, a lot of interest in food happening. And uh, it was growing exponentially in terms of population. So it was really on fire. And there were two big daily newspapers there at the time, plus a really, really popular alternative weekly. So there was almost this rivalry among the dining critics. And, were, and was your family still there when you got there? Were your parents still there? No. Okay, so you moved back and you were... Yeah. And, and so that when you say ghosts, you mean like memories of what used to be there, but you were starting again in this familiar place. Okay, yeah. so, so what was that like? I'm so curious because I've always wanted to know when you did your first review of the first restaurant that you wrote about, were you nervous? Were, did you go... Oh and, my God, yeah. I was so nervous. And, and this was before, you know, Twitter or anything else. It was not like an immediate feedback loop option. Right. <laughs> which happens now you write something and immediately you get the feedback. Um, so yeah, I was super nervous. I spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to figure out which restaurant I was going to write about because I wanted to do something that kind of, uh, allowed me to sort of introduce myself as like, I'm not a total outsider here. I do know a little bit about this city, um, for better or worse. Right. 
And so I ended up reviewing the oldest restaurant in the city, which is called the Buckhorn Exchange, which has been there since 18-something. Okay. It's known for, like, a really extensive whiskey list and, you know, perfectly fine, but really not all that special, but definitely celebrated uh, kind of cowboy-style barbecue. Not really true barbecue, but more like, you know, stuff on a grill. Um so you, and, uh, so you showed, did you, did you choose this as the place you wanted to review or were you assigned it? I, I chose it. Yeah, okay. I and chose it. So what did you say about it? I said, I can't remember precisely, but I, I, I think that I, look, I tried to be generally generous in most of my reviews because I never felt like there was a lot of value in taking down a restaurant unless there was some like reason that a restaurant was so either, I don't know, just had a famous owner, like there was a newsworthiness to the restaurant and that they were hosing people. Right. That to me, it would be the only reason, but like to take down kind of a, a generally unassuming, it just didn't make sense to me. So to, did, to, did it, you do that though? Like, did you take down a restaurant or two in your time? Well, what I had to do was decide that like, Right away, I, my, my, my mission was going to be, let me assess what this restaurant is trying to do and then see if I can figure out whether or not they are successful in achieving that goal that they have set. Yeah. So whether restaurant for me kind of doesn't really matter. I think, that's, um, I think that's how all good critics should proceed, whether it's film or theater or music. It's like you have to look at it on the terms on which the work is being created, I think. Yeah, so, I think so. It's like there's, you know, it's ultimately for me, restaurant criticism was about matchmaking. Right. Like I want to put the right customer in front of the right menu and and then figure out how to make those connections more than ever. But there were a couple of restaurants that I felt were just so either overpriced or so filled with smoke and mirrors that I felt like they weren't, they could do better in terms of just being a little bit more humane and um, human. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you doing a star system, like one star, two star, three star? Yeah, of course, no one was ever happy with that. So, so what was your first, did you ever give a zero star review? I don't think I did, no. I think, uh, I think the lowest I ever gave was one star. No, actually, that's not true. I did give a, a zero star review. Um, but our system was like the New York Times. So one meant good, two meant very good, three meant great, and four meant extraordinary. I never gave four stars. You never gave four stars? No, I didn't. I, I don't think so. I might have once. Actually, no, that's true. I did once. But um, what were what was the remember what the four star review was for? It was for it was weird, and I it was a gamble because it was a pretty new restaurant. But uh, at that time, it was called Fruition, and it was this tiny little place where I just felt like the, they, had a, they had a very close relationship with the farms that they were working with and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And this was sort of in 2000, maybe nine. So that, uh, that was still kind of not that usual. Mm-hmm to have a relationship with your vendors and so forth. That's so interesting because now I'm doing like a psychological thing with you because I'm thinking about your childhood and your grandparents 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting that your four star review went to a place that had a good relationship with the farms, you know? Yeah. It just felt to me like they were being really respectful and, and reverential, I guess, almost about how they were accessing and treating the stuff that they were using and serving to people. Also, they had a beautiful service program, you know, like just so much hospitality, like such, such warmth. And, um, you know, I, I always believe that, like, the food is part of what makes a restaurant great, but it's not the thing. So when you were in Denver, and were you single when you were there? Uh, for, for the first few years when I was there, yeah. And I then, mean, what's that like to be, you know, gay and single and a, a powerful food critic? I mean, were you, <laughs> were you taking guys on dates to the restaurants that you were reviewing? And, and you know, I, mean, I, I don't know. That, that's just like a fantasy of mine. Like, that would, that would be really cool to, to be like, oh, I'm just, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm, a food, I'm the food critic for the Denver Post. <laughs> I mean, was that fun? I mean, there, I guess there was something sort of, I don't know. I, I didn't, I had a very low profile. Like I, okay. I never went to food events. I never, you know, I, I really, I stayed as anonymous as I could. Although I, I did find out that some people had my picture up on the, you know, on the wall of the kitchen or whatever. Um, finding people to eat is sometimes hard oh, yeah. because you have to go out five or six times a week at least and you need people to order what you tell them to order. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? And also, and also like, not talk about it tomorrow. And also know? being like a gay man, like I, I think part of the reason I ended up with Craig was that he was a really good eater and like mm-hmm. open to eating anything. But like a lot of gay men can be kind of petty about what they eat and, and you know, more concerned about their bodies than they are about what they're eating. But I digress. <laughs> it's really key to just kind of have Catholic tastes, right? Or yeah. at least openness to to try stuff and honestly i i found that some of the best people that i would eat with were people who didn't necessarily have a really deep knowledge of food Mm -hmm. but just really good instincts of oh that's good yeah oh not good and like as soon as like somebody looks at something and says that's good or not good with no filter and not a lot of song and dance about it it makes me think, okay, why are they saying that? And look at it a little bit more closely. So eventually I developed some people that I really trusted. Well, I don't want to dwell too long on this period of your life, but I am also curious, like, like if somebody called me tomorrow and said, we want you to be the food critic for the LA Times or something, one of the things I'd be most nervous about would be my, I mean, as much as I know a lot about cooking, but like when it comes to like wine lists, like that's a great example. Like I don't know anything about a wine list. And were there certain yeah. things that you had to educate yourself about before you got went into this job and, and had to learn on the spot? For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, grading somebody's wine list, um, it felt important to me more that they had a great sort of program to help a customer navigate the wine list and to help a customer understand what they might like. Mm -hmm. Um, And to, you know, I always used to do things like choose the cheapest wine on the menu for sure. Mm -hmm. And just see how that went over. Yeah. Because um, at a great place, a really place with that's sort of comfortable and warm, they're cool with that, you know? It's only at the weird places where you get these like upsells all right. the time. And I hate things like that. Sure. I, I, I agree. But it does drive me crazy. 
Um, so yeah, I had to learn a little bit about that stuff. I, I, I cultivated some people that I could call and ask questions about, about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, there were times when there were ingredients on the plate that I was not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really know what they were supposed to be. Um, and insofar as I could get other people to kind of give me an assist on understanding that stuff or even come with me on a second or third visit, mm-hmm. I would. Because you can't ever know anything. That's, I think, why food is interesting. Because you never know everything. That's true. It's endless. I mean, how boring would that be? Wait, I, I think we skipped over something, though, because we kind of glossed over it. But So you wrote a book called Everything That I Ate. And yeah. that was a book where you took a picture of every meal that you had every day for a whole year. That's right. So can you tell us that, like what led to that? Like, and, and that was so ahead of its time too, because that was pre Instagram, right? And pre yeah. Twitter yeah. and all those things. So what, what, what made you want to do that? I don't really know, honestly, but it just sort of like occurred to me one day that like, I, I had this digital camera. I had been given it for my birthday. My birthday's in December. And, um, I was sort of like, wow, you don't have to buy film anymore. Like, and by the way, this was not like the first year digital cameras were available, but <laughs> I had, and I, I was sort of like, you can take as many pictures as you want and it doesn't matter. And like, that's kind of cool. And I thought, geez, I, that coincided with me really thinking about New York city after, you know, at that time, I felt like we had never as a species had this much access to this much food in terms of variety and quantity ever in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at that in a dark kind of way, that can't last. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not, like, that's not really sustainable. Right. So it was a little part of me that just thought, you know what, I should document this. And because of this digital photography, I can. And so really it was just kind of project for myself. Like, I wanted to remember that year mm-hmm. for some reason. Um, and so I went for it. And so when you look back on that book, do you see images of food that conjure up specific memories of people and places and that time in your life? Totally. When you say that I wrote that book, that's generous because really it's just photographs and captions. Okay. Every photograph has a caption of what the food is, what the food is, and the first names of the people of who I was with and what time of day it was. So if you read really closely. And some people have said this to me, they can see little relationships I had that like maybe didn't last, Uh you know, like some constants throughout of people that I would always um, connect with. Um, There's a lot of, I got bored taking pictures of food during the process. Um, So I tried to put stuff in the background. Like there's a lot of covers of New York post in there and there's like, (laughs) there's a picture of Oprah or whatever, you know, to try and give a little bit of like context so that hopefully, I mean, it's no great piece of art. Well, I, I, I think it's, a, but it was ahead of its time because there is a fascination in what people eat. And I mean, that's literally what I do every day on my Instagram is like, this is what I had yes. for lunch. This is what I had for dinner. But did you feel an obligation to make it more interesting to make your food choices more interesting than they would have been had you not been doing it? I had to resist that a little bit. Yeah. But there were certainly some times when I thought, God, this is really looking very dull. <laughs> I need to like, figure out how to, you know what, I'm going to spend the day in Chinatown and just make this a little bit more interesting this weekend. Um, and had you sold well, the book before you started the project or did you start the project and then sell the book? I started the project just on my own. 
and then I was friends with, do you know Doc Willoughby? I, I don't know him personally, but I know his work. I think I have yeah. one of his cookbooks. Yeah. He's a good old, old, old friend of mine and one of my greatest friends. And I just love him. And he just thought this was the most absurd thing that I was doing. And like, why am I doing this? Like, why would you take your photographs of things? And then, by the way, it was really annoying for people that I went out for dinner with because no one was doing that kind of thing. <laughs> Flash goes off in a restaurant. People are like, oh, my God, is it, you know, is Barbara Streisand here? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Or is somebody having a heart attack? Right. Um, but he mentioned it to his friend Sam Sifton at the New York Times. So maybe four or five months into the project, I ended up going out to dinner with Sam. And um, he ended up writing a little story about it in the Times. And then shortly thereafter, um, Chronicle Books called me up that's amazing yeah okay so we have the book then we have the food critic job and so how long were you the food critic for i guess about nine years oh wow i, I was the critic for maybe six of those years and then the food editor for the rest of the time and so that's an interesting way to segue into the job you have now because being an editor at the Denver Post in the food section. I mean, did that was that something you took to right away? Did you like editing other people's work and assigning stories, or was that something that very you much? Okay, yeah, I like that a lot because um, I like the focus of of writing for mm -hmm. sure, but I really like the variety of editing too because you get to connect with people and um, uh, hopefully help them make stuff that they're proud of. You know. Um, but I like the, you get to shift gears a lot. And I like that. And so when you were the editor, were you done being the food critic or were you still also the food critic? I was, there was some overlap, but eventually it just, I got, uh, there was a time, there was a moment when I realized like, God, I'm really starting to hate restaurants <laughs> and I, like, I need to get out because if you're a food critic who, who hates restaurants, that's just bad for everybody. <laughs> what, what, did, what did you hate about them by the end? Like, what were you, what, what made you angry? It wasn't hate, really. That's probably a strong word, but I was weary of it. I was weary of going out all the time. And, um, you know, what a great problem to have, right. by the way. Sure. Like, you have to go out to restaurants all the time and, and not pay for it. Uh, but I just, uh, I don't know. It was time. I also think that if you're a, a dining critic for too long, that's also not good for anybody. Like, yeah. I don't think it's good for you, and I don't think it's good for your city. Well, we've had um, Bill Addison has been on this podcast, and he's the food yeah. critic for the LA Times. But we've gone out with him to a couple of meals already that he's reviewed, and, and it it, there is something kind of stressful about it. Like, as yeah. much as it's supposed to be fun, like, he took us recently, and I'm not going to say the name of the place in case he's going to write about it, but he took us to this yeah. very strange Korean barbecue place that was serving, like, high-end steaks, and it was yeah. just, and it, I mean, some of the stuff that he ordered, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this, but like, we're, we're like $150, like aged ribeyes. And then the, they cooked it on the table in front of us. And the guy who was cooking it kind of screwed up. Like he kept like moving the meat around and like, it just like, it was a kind of, it was like this huge waste of expensive, good meat. And there was something about it where I, I felt like my heart was beating fast because I was like, yeah. oh my God, like the food critic for the LA times is like watching you cook this meat in front of us and ruin it. And you have no idea that this is happening. And this poor guy was like making small talk and like he was giving the spiel that the restaurant told him to do. But it was like, I was so nervous about that situation. And luckily like nothing came of it yet. I mean, maybe Bill won't write about it, but there is just something stressful about it. 
Well, the, the stakes are high, not to pun the stakes you were just talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, right. Um, you know, the, those are people's livelihoods. Yeah. You know, and they're taking a risk by doing things like serving a $150 steak cooked tableside. Like, that's scary yeah. for them. Too. Sure. Um, and who knows, maybe he was made, as they say. Um, you know, maybe he was found out. Um, which um, Maybe. You know, I noticed that a couple times happened to me. I could, you could always tell. When suddenly you're you're sitting at dinner and things are fine and you have a, a person who's waiting on you or whatever, and then suddenly it's a new person. Mm-hmm. Suddenly someone in a suit comes over. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like oh geez, I didn't realize the owner was in the house tonight because it's Sunday and he's usually not here or or whatever. So. Every now and then, you you get kind of get busted. And did for you, sure. would that affect your ability to be objective, or was that were you more I, critical? I hated it. Just made me mad at myself. Yeah, because I just thought, oh, geez. I mean, now I can't really use this as an authentic experience mm-hmm. because it's different now. I will say that um, uh, people sometimes try to send over food or kind of cut me a deal on the check. And I, I always had to call them out on that, not necessarily in the moment, but sometimes maybe the next day and settle the check as it was supposed to be settled. Right. Um, because I just felt like that's, I, you can't do that, yeah. you know? And as soon as you do that, even if no one ever knows, it's just, there's something sticky about it that doesn't oh, yeah. feel Right. So, I mean, we're, we're not at the end of this podcast yet, but I don't want to miss all the fun stuff that like happened later. So, okay. So then now you live in Boston now, right? That's right. Yeah. I moved here six years ago. And was that straight from Denver? Yep. So yep. how did that all come about? What was, what was the, what brought you to Cook's Illustrated and America's Test Kitchen? Back to Doc. Okay. Doc was at that time, Gourmet had closed and he was back working at Cook's Illustrated and they were looking for a new editor for Cook's Country. And uh, so they had started interviewing people, and Doc asked me, he was like, I, there's no way you're going to want to move to Boston, but in case you do, here's this opportunity. So I came out, and I interviewed with Chris Kimball, who was still with the company at that time, and um, then they offered me a job. So a few months later, I moved here and started it. And it, it was like a fantasy for me to work in a development kitchen is just um, cause you know, I didn't go to culinary school, so I don't have a, sort of that formal training, especially not the kind of training that the cooks who I work with have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm mostly not, you know, hands-on in the kitchen. I'm more of an editor, but just to be around that, to be around that creativity and to be around that like extraordinary system that, that we have, for developing recipes, which is a little crazy sometimes, but um, everybody there really seems to care about it so much. And it's just made me so happy. And you get to hang out with Bridget and Julia, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I came late to America's test kitchen as a TV show, but now I watch, Mm -hmm. I mean, my Saturday ritual is to watch all of the PBS cooking shows, including this country and now, like, I'm a groupie of theirs. I mean, they're so fun. They're so interesting. Yeah. And they, you know, pretty much anybody that appears on the show actually works in the kitchen. Okay. Brit and Julia are, have to travel a lot. I mean, not currently, but usually um, to do appearances and things like that. Um, 
but they both were, you know, test cooks in the kitchen for years and years and years. And everybody else on the show is also kind of a working test cook in the kitchen too. So, um, yeah, it's just cool. I mean, it's sort of, uh, they're celebrities within our midst, but they're also like coworkers. I have some gay, uh, nerdy food friends who are all, all have crushes on Dan Souza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very popular with the boys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm curious. So, so in terms of shifting your responsibilities or your your the way you went about your job, I mean, suddenly now you're in Boston. Was that was yeah. that how was it to move to Boston? What did you think of Boston at the beginning? Uh, it was a, definitely a change. I mean, you know, um, the, the thing about Denver is it's a car based town like L.A. Uh, so I spent all my time in the car. Um, but also you have this access to these like mountains, which are really world-class Alpine kind of experiences. And and I love the mountains. So I definitely miss that. But Boston to me, I don't know. It's very walkable. I don't have a car anymore. Um, my life is a little bit more like it was in New York in terms of it's a little, it's smaller. Uh, You know, my, my place is smaller. My, the number of things I have is much less. Everything is just a little bit more contained. Um, and so also the seafood is great. Mm-hmm. Great. And like, you know, Denver has good seafood too, but it's not. Like was, the- was it hard to walk into a job where there was already an established culture of people that all knew each other and had a rhythm and a system? And was that hard to ingratiate yourself? Uh, maybe a little, but not a lot. Yeah. I think, you know, food people are generally, I don't know, in my experience tend to be, Open armed. That's true. That's actually a really good point about like choosing a career in food because you're, you're always, I mean, do you know Ben Mims, the food writer? He's, I don't know him personally, but I know his work. Yeah. Well, he's now, now he's my neighbor basically because he moved to LA and like we were just like swapping like with our face masks on. Like I gave him some sourdough starter and he brought me some biscuits and it's just like, it's so good to know other food people because it just yeah. makes, means they're generous. Yeah. Um, well, Tucker, we're nearing the end of the podcast. I feel like we like raced through through your life and we barely scratched <laughs> the surface. But I want to say, so we started with your lunch, which I'm not yeah. sure we like super analyzed, but I see some connections. I just want to say between the austerity and the simplicity of sardines, bread and butter and your childhood on the farm and and the four star review to the farm to table restaurant. Like I feel like there's there's some things that are becoming apparent which is that like there's no pretense. I feel like you're not a pretentious person. And even ordering like the cheapest bottle of wine on the menu seems in, <laughs> in the spirit with that. So I feel like we, we got some psychological insight into you. I, I, I think I, I guess I would appreciate, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I would concur. I think uh, I look at food dinner in a sort of practical way. Yeah. yeah. And so the final question is always, what are you having for dinner tonight? Oh my gosh. Well, uh, that's a good question. So what I'm hoping to do, and I guess what I will do because I'm not going to the grocery store. Yeah. Uh, I have been kind of, uh, craving pasta. I've been trying to like not eat pasta for a few days. So tonight's going to be sort of a, a carbonara situation, but instead of, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to use a cured meat from the Russian shop. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is because all the letters are in Cyrillic. Uh, <laughs> it appears to be a pork belly and it appears to be smoked or cured in some fashion. So some of that, some capers, some parm, parm a couple of eggs. That sounds delicious. 
Yeah. I've never put um, capers in a carbonara. Is that traditional? Okay. I, I shouldn't even call it a carbonara, but I, I'm kind of crazy for capers. So they, yeah. they go in everything. You know, <laughs> have you ever used the Google Translate camera on the app for Google Translate? No. It's amazing. We went to Japan this year. And, um, and also we went to France two years ago. So if you download the Google Translate app, there's a camera on it. And if yeah. you hold it up against a foreign language, it will translate it for you in the image itself. That's amazing. So you got to right. da- download that tonight and hold it over your um, meat product. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what I'll find. <laughs> maybe I'll do it after. Yeah, maybe after. <laughs> um, and so, so you're going to make this dinner for yourself. And um, do you cook for yourself often? Yeah, I uh, I live by myself, and uh, I I live the cooking for one lifestyle. Great, yeah. <laughs> um, but I do. I like to cook. It, I I find it relaxing, and especially now, I feel like it's um, as a task. It takes my mind off of the world just enough, uh, so that I'm just kind of occupied with something else, with my brain and my hands for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that. It's it's a nice it's a welcome diversion for sure. Plus, you get something to eat out of it. So I think so too. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling exactly the same way. Well, yeah. Tucker, this was so lovely to finally get to meet you. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to meet at Marie's Crisis someday and oh. sing some songs. Um, well, I'm gonna stop this chat right now. Okay. I mean, I'm gonna stop the recording, but then I need to take a, a screenshot of our little dynamic here. Great. All right. 